The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Glitch in the Matrix discovered just before the westbound I-20 exit to Tombsuba, Mississippi. Unfortunately, it is in the median of the interstate there and guarded by talking bears with electrified tridents and Roman candles, so nobody's able to go there and experience anything weird. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with scientist, SF author, and university professor and administrator, Dr. Robert E. Fury. Rob discusses a great new article he has provided for us at Bain.com. That piece is called The Bridge of Size, Are We What Might Have Been? by Robert E. Fury. Now, my boss, Tony Weisskopf, remarked that this is just the kind of think piece Jim Bain would have loved. It examines the possibility that we are living in and are part of a simulation, like a universal simulation. In fact, that we are part of a nested simulation going up to some almost inconceivable future beings who are the real ones. Rob says it seemed like a silly conjecture to him at first. But he started thinking about it more and more and examining the evidence, and he maybe changed his mind a little bit. So, a really fascinating discussion with Rob Fury. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now, here's the news. Hey, let us discuss the mighty April EARCs for a moment. Now, an EARC is the best possible path in the line of force that automatically attracts my son's lacrosse ball to my car's front windshield whenever he's practicing in the front yard. No, 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 that's not what an EARC is at all. An EARC is an electronic advanced reading copy. This is an ebook that is an advanced reading copy of a book. It's after the copy edit, but before all the proofreading is done. So there's some, so there's maybe a few glitches in the matrix of the book. But you get it sometimes three, four months in advance. Out now in New York is Battle Luna by Travis Taylor, Timothy Zahn, and Michael Z. Williamson. This is a fun one. The lunar colony is a mining colony with only internal security capabilities, but now something has been uncovered on the moon. It's something important. The lunar colonists perceive this great discovery as their own, but so do the governments of Earth. Contention, there's only one solution, turn Luna into a battlefield, and that's what the book is about. And out in April, as an e-arc, is At the End of the World by Charles E. Gannon. Now, this is set in John Ringo's uh, Black Tide Rising universe. Six teenagers bound on a senior summer cruise ranging from suburban geeks to street-smart pariahs, and a British captain who rarely smiles altogether. What could go wrong? Zombies could go wrong. Just days after they leave, a plague starts spreading like wildfire, turning its survivors into cannibalistic monsters. Now the small ship they are sailing becomes their only hope for survival. There's more out in Eark is In the Palace of Shadow and Joy by D.J. Butler. 
Bard Indrajit Twang and Mercenary Fix have been hired by a powerful risk merchant to protect the life of opera star Ilsa without peer for the duration of a risk contract they've taken on. Will they be able to save her and save themselves in the palace of shadow and joy? This is a sort of Fritz Lieber-esque uh, far future science fiction story that's almost fantasy. It's so far in the future. It's pretty cool what Dave Butler's done here. And finally out now in eARC form is The Vanished Seas by Catherine Asaro. The powerful elite of the City of Cries are disappearing and only Major Bajan, who grew up in the Undercity, can find them, if she isn't murdered first. But if she survives, waiting for Bajan is a revelation that may transform Cries and the Ruby Empire itself forever. The Vanished Seas, EARC by Catherine Asaro in the Palace of Shadow and Joy, EARC by DJ Butler at the End of the World, EARC by Charles E. Gannon and Battle Luna, EARC by Travis Taylor, Timothy Zahn, and Michael Z. Williamson are now available exclusively at Bain eBooks in all e-reader formats, including Kindle, of course. Go to Bain.com and find them there. Want to welcome Dr. Robert E. Fury to the podcast. Uh, hey, Rob, how's it going? I'm pretty good. How about you, Tony? I'm okay, considering. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Rob, uh, Dr. Rob Fury. Um, do we say Fury or Furry? Or um, I've always, you know, I know you as Rob Fury. It's Fury. Yeah, Fury. Fury. But it's been lots of almost my entire life. It's it's always a furry that comes in there every once in a while. <laughs> well, I just go how uh, how Bob Kruger taught me to pronounce it. So, all right, Dr. Rob Fury is a biologist by training whose work has centered around social aspects of spider behavior, but with broader interests in areas of astronomy, physics, geology, and forensics. Uh, Rob won numerous awards for innovating innovative teaching, both academic and business groups, and has worked closely with the Dauphin County Coroner's Office, uh, which is, I suppose, in Pennsylvania, as a sworn deputy, deputy. He is a professor in integrative sciences at Harrisburg University and serves as assistant provost there. Complementary activities include director of the Environmental Education Center at Fort Belvoir, or is it Belvoir? I don't know, uh, Virginia. Guide and Science Advisor to the Partridge Film Crew in Equatorial West Africa and Science Essays in Aeon Magazine and uh, others at Bain.com, including a really cool article we did a few, a couple of three years ago about um, colonial spiders or colon spiders that have colonial structures in their behavior. He's a graduate. He's also a science fiction writer, graduate of science fiction workshop Clarion West. His fiction has appeared in many anthologies. So uh, what we want to talk about today, though, is this great nonfiction piece that we've, we've got up called The Bridge of Size, Are We What Might Have Been, by Robert E. Fury. Um, I guess uh, before we, we get into that, tell, tell me a little bit about your science background. And, and uh, you spent a lot of time in, in San Juan, right? You... Um, I've always wanted to go on like one of your teaching trips down there. What do you do when you when you take kids down there? Well, we we go down and look at uh, sort of the interconnections of 
of ecosystems and the society that's that's there. And we've done that trip to San Juan a couple times now. We do it to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, I do it in Bahia, Brazil, and we recently started doing it out in Utah, although that one's still a little bit of a shotgun approach. We it was the first time, so we're just we're just sort of figuring out what that's going to look like. But we have a couple trips where we, where we do that, and um, yeah, so it's it's a how how people live in the area related to how the area lets them live, if that makes sense. Hmm. And are you still a spider scientist, or is that something that? Um. No, I, I, I still do. When I, the, when I go down to Brazil, part of the Brazil trip is looking at uh, Anolosimus eximius, which is one of, one of the, uh, the quasi-social spiders, and it's actually the one that was most mentioned in that article that you referred to. So, no, I'm still, I'm still doing that work, and we have some, uh, some pretty good research now underway with our with a partnership university down in uh, Salvador, Brazil, and we're looking at the same spider. And here I'm up here I'm looking at resource partitioning in orb web spiders and some genetic behavior in grass funnel spiders. <laughs> so we're looking to actually test levels of of fear in uh, grass funnel spiders and seeing if it has genetic components and if that's related to resources. Levels of what? Fear. <laughs> fear. So um, we have a fear test where uh, if you've seen these spiders, they have a flat web and they have uh, where they, they hunt, and then there's a little hole at one side or the other, and the spider usually sits at the mouth of that hole. And when an insect falls on its web, it comes out and, and grabs it and eats it and pulls it back in. Um, so we, we tested, we're calling fear um, how willing they are to stay at that, the mouth of that hole when they're disturbed. So we give them a little puff of air from one of those old uh, air puffers to clean off slides, which nobody knows what a slide is anymore, but we clean off the slide and the spider runs in the hole to, to find some protection. And the time that it's in the hole, before it comes back out and gets ready to feed again, we're calling a measure of its fear. So what we found is, is in areas where there's a lot of insect uh, food available, they, they hide for a long time. And when there's very little food available, they hide for a short time because they can't afford to be away. So the ones that have low food levels are much more aggressive and have less fear. So we're trying to see if that is uh, a, the genetic components of that and see if we can't breed some levels of fear in the lab. Well, you could look at it the other way and say, those are really brave little spiders when they're hungry, I suppose. Yeah. But they, they have to be. Oh, because, that's cool. You know, if, if, they're, if they're hiding when their next dinner comes and lays down there, then they don't have time to catch it before it figures out how to get off the web. So, yeah, they have to be braver in, in places with low food availability. But your article is about something. Your, your article is a something along the lines of integrative science it's really philosophy um or, and and let's talk about that now um so you start out with this uh thing called nick bostrom's trilemma and simulation argument and you have three points to it can you sort of say what those are and unpack them a little bit and tell us get us get us going on this 
So, so first, um, let me just say that there's been some people that have not even understood what the word simulation in this thing is, is really talking about. And some people are assuming that it's a simulation of like your, your grandfather who might die and you keep, uh, you know, you keep like an Alexis that's programmed as your grandfather on your desk so that you can talk to him whenever you want. And that's not what simula the simulated people here are. This simulation is running large scale simulations to tweak the variables in those simulations to see what would happen if a certain variable was given a different value. So these three values, these three uh, uh, choices in Bostrom's trilemma, <coughs> pardon me, the fraction of human level civilizations that reach a post-human stage. So all that means is that the, the number of, of uh, planetary civilizations that can build computers that are able to run complete simulations of their own past so that they could see, for example, if we wanted to do that, uh, we would see what would have happened to world history if the, if, the, if the Axis had won World War II instead of the Allies. So what, what would have happened if, if Rome never fell? We could do that. And you run these simulations to see what would, what would happen. So the fraction of human-level civilizations that reach a post-human stage is very close to zero, which means the first one is that they, they never reach this ability. Number two, the fraction of post-human civilizations that are interested in running these simulations is close to zero. That means that they, that they have the computer capacity to do it, they just don't see any point in doing it, so they don't do it. And the third one is the number of, of civilizations that can do it and decide that it's a valuable tool. So these are the three options, and if anybody can think of a fourth one, I'd be interested in hearing it, because these, as, you know, as they're set up, are supposed to be the, the three exhaustive possibilities when you're talking about these kind of simulations. Okay, so this is the possibilities. I could think of a fourth one, but maybe I'll bring it up later and see if you can shoot it down. <laughs> With, which is, uh, uh, a civil, all right, I'll tell it to you now. A civilization decides to create uh, ancestor simulations and then kills itself off and disappears into its own simulation. Well, then I would then I would have to ask you who's who would who would maintain the machines if there's nobody out there running the machine? Then I guess they would just run down and and run out of steam and break. I don't know. I mean, if, 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 that was a, if that was a case, then I, I think that that would be a special case for number three because that would be somebody that, were, that had the ability and made the choice to do it, and then it's now a subset where they somehow screw it up. They have this existential crisis, and they, they run into their own simulation, and then they're gone. But they still, they still had the capability to do it, and they still did it. So I think that's, that's part of number three. All right, onward. Um, all right, so your first reaction to encountering Bostrom's trilemma and his argument um, was that's that's the first part of your article. What what do you what would you say to that? Can you? I thought it was I thought it was kind of silly. I mean, I thought it was you know clever and a, you know philosophical hand waving. Um, but I didn't. I didn't put much credence into it. I mean, really, who would? It's 
it's it's such a it's such a science fictiony type type thing that you know if if he had come up with this in medieval England, no one would have given it a second thought. So I mean, it's sort of a, a science fictiony cool idea that's that's in the right time. I, I don't know. That's that was my initial my initial feeling for it. I just didn't put much credence into it. The argument is is that we're living in a simulation ourselves, right? I mean, well, the arg- the argument is that the, the the probability that we're living in a simulation is very very high. See, here, here's the here's the thing. <clears throat> the only the, the the argument that we're living in a simulation is very very high is only if number three is is right, and we can't know that until we build our own simulation. The moment that we do. We no longer know if we are simulated or not, but but right now we can't do it. So so we still don't know. So these these three are 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 equal. So this the, his trilemma sets that up. The simulation argument is that we are in a simulation, but it already assumes that the correct answer to the trilemma is three. But the moment that we launch our very first simulation, um, that's 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 real and and fulfills all the criteria for being an ancestor simulation, then the probability that we are virtual immediately skyrockets. As in, if we can do it, then somebody will have done it. And we're probably the results of that. That's right. All right. So you, at first at least, you didn't like this too much. You had a, you had a, argument against it. Can you outline that? Well, you know, I, I started thinking about um, that his, his argument is that, you know, first you have this progenitor race, if you will, that builds this computer simulation to see what, what might have happened in its own past. And it's so detailed <coughs> that the beings that live in that computer simulation are themselves able to build simulations. So you end up with simulations inside simulations inside simulations, and it's sort of this ever-branching, bigger and bigger and bigger network of civilizations that are built on top of each other. And all of those simulations are all, but they have to be running on the computer power that is in the progenitor uh, the race that it all has to come from there, and at some point they're going to just run out of computer power. That, and that was really basically my my big problem with this is you know logistically that there just isn't that much computing power in the world. Just isn't it isn't possible. So at at some point you know this thing just has to break down when when the processors run too hot. And you're you're. You examine briefly the other arguments against it, which are uh, your astrophysicist, your autodidact, and your uh, your brain scientist. Um, what what are the, what were those? Um, so the uh, the brain scientist, when I spoke to her, she said that um, it wasn't possible to even simulate a single human being because the chemical reactions in the brain are just way, way, way too complex. And I didn't, I didn't like that argument because, I mean, just because it's complex doesn't mean that it can't be 
simulated at some point in the future when our when our understanding goes up. So I mean that was I, I thought that was really not an argument at all. Um, my autodidact said that we that consciousness because this requires the these simulated worlds require that the denizens of them at least think that they have free will. So how do you get free will? Well, for, he he claims that our free will is is a matter of uh, just r- random electrical impulses that are skittering up and down your your dendrites and and um, I thought that was that was a nice argument but I but when I went and looked at it I, I couldn't find any support for it at all I heard some I heard some papers that were talking about it as a possibility but nobody really knows so I just sort of disregarded it um, my astrophysicist he didn't even want to talk about it. He just, he, he really, he literally said, don't waste your time. That's exactly what he said. So, I don't know. I'm not sure how helpful it was, except that as I was talking to to them, you know, the, the rest of my ideas are sort of percolating around in my head. And I have to admit that at that point, I was still, um, I, I was still not even, slightly convinced that this might be a possibility. So I was sort of on on their sides. I just thought their arguments didn't apply very well. Now there's your problem was not with the Sebastrum has an answer to the infinite computing power problem, but yours was your objection was a little bit different than what he he addresses, right? Yeah, so um what I ended up doing was thinking about um, computer games and how they work and so you know I'm a I'm a tropical ecologist and a forensic entomologist but I also work in interactive media here at the university so I was talking to some of those guys and it dawned on me as I was as I was watching them teach students how to build computer games the com- the computer game programmers are very clever about what they do with um, with data so if you've got <clears throat> if you've got uh, someone acting in a computer game, they only need to know, and they only and the machine only needs to program what they can immediately see. So um, th- these computer programmers save a lot of computing power by tricking you into thinking that there's a whole world out there, when really there isn't. It's only in whatever whatever block is active at the moment. So I started thinking about started thinking about that, and what that did was take a whole lot of pressure off the progenitors who are running all of these simulations on on their their own the only set of real world computer banks so um that that was was my solution that that he didn't come up with and it came from computer games so that that kind of began to unnerve you perhaps um you're sitting there in the square in uh in puerto rico in san juan and you start thinking uh maybe maybe this could be a sim what what arguments are there uh i mean you just made one uh that the repetition and copying idea like the way that filmmakers can just you know uh copy and paste crowds and make it look like we're looking at a giant crowd, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, in, in San Juan, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't so much the, the evidence that we were in a, uh, a, a simulation, but 
that the we were already collecting the data to build our own simulations because you know right now when you take a picture with your phone where does it go i mean it it goes free to to, to some you know to some google photo bank or amazon photo bank and it's all free and it's all stored online and it all has meta information involved with every one of those pictures so they know where it came from and what time of day it was and 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 that gives them access to all kinds of other information like weather and temperature and all of these things and so all of this data is out there scattered just waiting for somebody to come and put it together and and what i found out that there's already somebody doing that they're they're putting together they're going out there and collecting all the scattered information from turn of the century new york and rebuilding new york in virtual by the very same thing that struck me when i was sitting in the the square in San Juan. So, so all, all of that stuff wasn't so much the idea that we might be virtual, but at that point, really, it, we could you could even make the argument that we're going to be the progenitor of all this stuff. But just that the, yeah. the data is available, and it's and it's huge. There's enormous amounts of data that is all ready to click together like a jigsaw puzzle and create virtual San Juan that you're going to be able to visit. How is this? Uh, maybe it's not, um, but it seems to me like this is this is what history, the study of history is, is creating a, a simulation of the past in your mind, at least. Um, I, I, I think I think you're right about that, but the, you know the problem, of course, is you know how do we how do we even know what history is? You can you could think of history sort of as a as a hourglass sitting on its side and we're right there where the sand grains go through and when the sand grains go through we know exactly what what's going on because we can see them but if you look to the future the bottle spreads out in possibilities and if you look to the past the bottle spreads out in in uh, uncertainty so we we don't really know what happened in the past but we're, we can try and put it together and and maybe we're right and maybe we're wrong. And sometimes we're we're better able to get a picture of what really happened and other times we're just making shit up. I mean the hi yeah. history is yeah. written by the victors, right? Well, some would say that, yes. Um on the well, let's put that argument bracket that argument for a moment and continue with your your I was I mean, I was just struck by the idea. Well, that's what historians are trying to do. They're they're collecting all this information, trying to get a clear, you know, not they they'll never be objective, but trying to to get some clear picture of the past. That is basically a recreation of old New York that they could draw on to make other conclusions, et cetera. I don't know. Let let's move on. <laughs> Tell us about illustrious and, and open worm. Um, those are cool and they're real. They're going on right now, right? Okay, so this this is where things started to, to really um, bother me because, <clears throat> you know, I, I, as, as I said before, it, it wasn't, it's not until we build our own simulation that we can actually start being worried about uh, our own virtuality. And so I started looking around at, you know, where this stuff was going. And nobody's, nobody's looking to build ancestor simulations, but all the different parts are being built. And all different levels of, of simulations that are looking at other things, not not all encompassing simulations like the one that that, uh, that you and I might be living in. But if you look up in the sky, 
Um, they, you know, large-scale universe simulation is what Illustrious is doing. Um, it, 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 it simulates the entire universe from the origin up to today. With a, you know, what, what was it, a, a 1.2 uh, cubic megaparsecs of space. So uh, that's a that's a lot, and and when they did it, it looks it it looks the same as when you look up in the sky. So whatever variables they put in there, um, they 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 did a pretty good job. So the the simulation that they made matches the simulation that we the excuse me matches the reality that we see. <laughs> it was a Freudian slip, but the so the, so that the was, uh... there. That was an MIT. That was an MIT uh, scientist, that uh, computer group that that did that, and they ran it on a like a on a supercomputer or something, right? Or it was uh, networked. Right now, you, it's not something that you could run on a laptop. I mean, it, it, it you just couldn't do it. It would you'd you'd probably melt your laptop before it ever got anywhere. So. Um, yeah, it's you, you, you can't. You and I can't do that at home. So there's no there's no home universe program that you can run. Yeah. Well, so they they made the universe, but um, what about the granularity of the thing? You can't zoom down in there. What what is? How do you solve that problem? Well, that that's the thing. So it, the granularity is is taken is taken care of by other people doing other projects. So obviously, illustrious isn't going to be able to to granulate be granular enough that you can look down and and see microorganisms on a on a on a simulated planet. No, you can't do that. But there are other people that are that are simulating microorganisms. So and and, and there's everything in between illustrious and those microorganisms, which was the open worm project, which is uh, at the other end of the argument. But the Open Worm Project is is making simulated organisms that function exactly like the ones that we see crawling around in in our lawns. But you could take those and you could put those into the illustrious universe. And and now you're starting to get a little bit closer to to a real ancestor uh, simulation that starts to get a little disturbing. Because if, if you can have a sky that's filled with with all the kind of galaxies that we see and all those galaxies are made with all the kind of stars that we see and, and the kind of, of, of gravitational structures that we see and understand and, and then take, <coughs> and then you take the, the Mattingly model, which, it, which is uh, another level of simulation, the granularity of a single planet, which that in, in Mattingly, they, they have modeled the entire Earth for all for ecosystems and herd be, herd animal behavior and weather and all this stuff. So if you if you were to take a, a an open worm and put it on the Mattingly world and take the Mattingly world and stick it in an illustrious universe, well then then what do you have? Then you, then you've got something that's that, that I think is kind of crazy because it, at at that point you have organisms virtual organisms on a virtual planet with virtual weather and virtual ge geology inside a virtual universe and that's that's pretty much what the what a, an ancestor simulation is i mean you know the there's the the open worms the the sea elegant the model sea elegant worms are not 
are not going to be, you know, having wars or writing books or, or, or creating anything of, of value, but, but they are acting like biological organisms, and they do it inside a virtual Petri dish. So that, these are one of the things that started bothering me. And so that, and I, and I think we, we spoke a little bit about um, the, the project in, in Europe where they're actually building a virtual human mind. So if you can take that, they're nowhere near they are. I, I would leave that out of the present argument because C. elegans is done. But, but the, the mind that they're building in, in Europe is not done yet. But imagine when it is. So the European Future and Emerging Technologies Group makes, makes this human, human brain project that suddenly gets released into, into the Mattingly model world. Then what happens? Then you can start looking at, at interaction between people and, and great works of art and warfare and government styles and all this stuff. Then it can happen. This, this is this is when I started to get disturbed. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right. So, one of your your basic working assumptions. Um, it, it all right. So everything's coming together from the ground up and from the from the heavens down to try to try to sort of zero in on uh, on humanity, on a person, on uh, consciousness. Um, and you say in the article in a wonderful paragraph. However the universe is built, one thing is certain, we function based on the laws of the universe we exist within. You, we are an emergent portion of the universe that has awoken and finds its gaze turned inward. There's nothing that we do that the universe does not permit. We are the universe trying to understand itself. And so that statement sort of anchors the, the whole idea that um, if these things work, in both directions, we're going to arrive at, at something like a person. Or would you say no? No, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no. I would say absolutely, absolutely yes. But, but you know, then you gotta, you have to argue about what, what is something like a person? You know, it's, I, I, I don't think it necessarily, and I'm sure you agree that it doesn't necessarily mean human beings. It could be anything that thinks about itself and thinks about its environment and can manipulate things, right? But a, yeah. tool using, a tool using being that's self-aware, that's all. Well, that's sort of the definition of humans <laughs> in a philosophical way. <laughs> right, right. But I don't think that we, so, that we are the only thing that can be, be there. All right, so beyond that, you... Um, all right. First of all, you say that if if this is going on, if if we're creating, if we're living in a simulation, then we're at the bottom rung. Um, why do you say that? Well, because if there are, if there are simulations and somebody somebody built us, then um, and we haven't built one yet, then that means we're the bottom rung. I mean, we have to be, and and until we build one, we'll remain on the bottom rung. So how would you, how likely is that? That's, that's sort of the, the argument that, say, the moon produces the only real space in, in the whole freaking, uh, you know, universe where um, life could, you know, conscious life could arise. Uh, you know, and the argument about such, against such things, it's one thing, it's like, is, is that seems so unlikely that we happen to be uh, 
the one thing that that can study itself um it you know in all of this doesn't that bottom rung statement sort of fall into the same same uh statistical unlikelihood or or is it just necessary to conclude it it it's it's the only conclusion you can make if there is if there are simulations inside simulations it's we can't be <clears throat> excuse me we can't be anything other than the bottom rung unless somebody's running a simulation that we don't know about if there is then we're not the bottom rung um, it's, if there are no simulations running any yet in this line, then we are the top rock. The, the the place where it would be impossible to tell really would be where in the middle are we? So we're either starting it or we're we're the head or the tail at this point, one or the other. So we're in a unique position, probably, if it is going on. So move, which is an which is an interesting thing to contemplate in itself. Um, but moving beyond that, um, you, you move into, and I'm not as clear on this as, as I am the rest of the essay, because it starts to get, uh, starts to blow my mind. <laughs> Brains as simulations and the multiple personalities that, uh, that, that, disorder which exists you're you start talking about that and using it as uh, as as sort of an example of of the simulation problem explain what you what when, when uh, Dayton starts talking about um Bostrom's idea but not requiring computers when he's talking about brains right yeah so so yeah the, then you end up with this yeah, the, mul the way multiple personality disorder works. And, you know, I have no idea whether these, you know, what these numbers actually mean. And, you know, I went around and, and re read a whole bunch of papers on it. And um, actually, there's a lot more support for multiple personalities than I thought in the first place. But so these numbers, they just start to get crazy because, they're, you know, it's possible for people to have thousands of different personalities that are in their head at the same time and sometimes they're aware of each other and sometimes they're not which i didn't I actually didn't put this in the essay but that implies that there that there are hierarchies of personalities too so some some personalities are aware and some personalities aren't the ones that are aware would be higher on on the rungs than the ones that were unaware in in, in any case if if you're talking about virtual people well we already have them and you can already speak to them. And, and some of them know that they're virtual and some of them don't. So, um, it, it, yeah, I mean, that part was kind of mind-blowing, too. And, and, I only, and I only really put it in there to show that, uh, that, these, that the number of what we can call virtual and, and real, now at this point we would assume that you and I are not virtual and real, but the ratio of personal to real is already skewed. It's already skewed. We can go out and demonstrate that today, and it's, it would be very difficult to argue against that. So that part of the argument where people would talk about how there are the, the numbers of virtual people and numbers of real people, it just doesn't make sense. Well, it, it, you can see it already, and you may have even spoken to one of these things, one of these guys. I mean, I think I was calling them parasitic, parasitic personalities, and the parasitic personalities was 
anyone that was inhabiting a mind that didn't really grow up in the mind. So I'm assuming that every one of these has one legitimate resident and everybody else is a parasite. But there's more parasites than, than residents. Yeah. Well, you're you're actually talking to one now. This you're talking to podcast host. He doesn't always occupy this <laughs> this mind space. So but uh <laughs> um and he tries to uh, pronounce things without a southern accent all the time, which I find hilarious. So uh, I did my my dissertation in in Knoxville, and I and I spent a good many years in Knoxville, and I still have really good friends down there. And when I go down to see them, I'm I'm not out of the car 15 minutes before I got that drawl back. It's a, it's the strangest <laughs> thing. My daughter thinks. It's you mean you mean you start talking normal. That's right. Yeah, I lose, I, I lose my Yankee accent. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yankee Yankee accent is the parasitic uh, version, I believe. Sure. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so uh, here's my objection to do the we're living in a simulation argument, which is that this is nothing new to philosophy, um, and certainly not to science fiction, which, you know, there's all kind of, and you say that in the article, there's all kind of, you know, stories about this um, but my objection is the same one that you have toward the philosophical position of solipsism um, which is if we're living in a world surrounded by computer robots that do our you know that are there and we're the only conscious being um, which is something similar to this argument it seems to me then what difference does it make in how you act? There's no way to tell apart. If you call something rouge or red, you know, there's no difference. It's still the same, you know, it, you have to act as if it were real because um, there's no empirical way to tell them apart. Um, and, and like Bertrand Russell, his famous argument against, sol or, or anecdote about solicism, the woman comes up to him and says, you know, why solipsism is such a convincing argument. I don't understand why everyone's not a solipsist, um, which, you know, which says, well, there is no everyone, et cetera. So what's, what's the reply to that? Is it that we have to, can we figure out how to see the, a glitch in the matrix? What's the answer? Well, you know, there are, there are people that are, that are testing to see, to see if this is a is a, uh, a simulation, and they're <coughs> they're looking at they're looking at the, the difference of distances when you're at uh, 45 degree angle from each other, and the argument is that these that it would that the the distances um, would would be changed by the shape of whatever the pixels were. Um, so people are looking at that. But I don't really think you need to go that far. If if, if this is a, a virtual world and it's set up exactly like any other world, well, there's no reason why you wouldn't treat it as real because if you stub your toe, it hurts. And if you don't make a paycheck, you don't eat. I mean, these, these things are are going to affect you whether they're virtual or, or physical. I don't... Um, I, and I, if anybody said that this was virtual, so I'm not going to try anymore, well, they're going to suffer for that. So there's no real reason why it should make a difference at all. Let's put it another way. Um, if it, 
are is there some sort of difference between say a Turing test of of a, a virtual being and or you know to see whether you've made a consciousness or not um, if it behaves in every way like a person then aren't you just obliged to say well this is real you know the the universe behaves in every way as if it were real so you know that that's what the definition of real means there's no underlying metaphysical reality that that sustains it, it that's just what real is well i i think I, I think you're you're saying real i think it's not really a difference between real and and virtual the difference is between uh virtual and and physical and they're both real there's you know the the reality to a virtual being in a virtual world at the level that Bostrom is talking about is is probably no different than the way you feel in a physical world. It, there's no difference at all. The reason that that you would do it is because you would you would give them different starting points to see where they would end up and see what that that would affect. Given the fact that they are real and they're experiencing things as if as if they were they're experiencing things at their own level of reality and making decisions in in their own in their own realm of free will um so the only the only difference is is the starting points and after that it it's just like here or we're just like there however you want to talk about so your simulation is trying to answer a teleological question then you would have it would be that you are running this simulation f to show that if the universe didn't contain, for instance, uh, my mother, <laughs> everything would have gone to shit. <laughs> but fortunately, I was born. Uh, it's, you know, something like that. Um, you, you would have a point to doing it, or why do it? Uh, mother was somehow eliminated, then that means you would be too. Right. So, if the simulation was started, I don't know. I don't know when your mom was born, but let's say the simulation was started on the the, the day the day after your mom was born, and she wasn't included in the in the initial setup. Then everything that ran from then up to today would be would be different with on how it would have happened without your mom. And one of those things would be you wouldn't be here. I mean, you know, it's it's, yeah. uh, it's funny because you know I've lectured I've lectured about this this topic to people as I was working my way through it, and there was a room full of people one time, and I said, <laughs> um, somebody asked me this question, now why do it? I said, well, because we would we would set up a simulation to see what would have happened if the Axis had lost World War II, and nobody blinked an eye. The question of whether the Axis won World War II might be historically important to, you know, within the next 500 years, but pretty soon it's just going to fade into history. Um, it seems to me that you might want to find out something like, uh, the things that seem, uh, this is just a philosophical point, but like, um, because I think just whether this or that person was alive is more important than whether Hitler won or not um, in the you know, whether that butterfly beat its wings at that moment uh, might be more important. Uh, 
than whether, you know. Sure, but then you're, you're making an argument to do simulations because you want to see what's more important. It was the, the butterfly or the fall of the Roman Empire. Who knows? So you run That's a simulation. True. Yeah. Another point might be, to me at least, is that, that this is what fiction is. It is running alternate simulations of, of reality that teaches lessons and that um, in, entertain us and that um, give us insight into, uh, you know, into the consciousness of others and to, you know, with Eric Flint, it's like, you know, that, well, that's what would happen if 20th century American towns showed up in the middle of Germany in the 1600s or... Oh, believe me, I've been thinking of thinking about his his work a lot as I was working my way through this argument. Sure, yeah, it's a perfect example. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it, so even if, you, even if that even if that were the case, it's, it's just a, different methods of doing the same thing. You know, one of them's doing it with uh, with an author's careful thought and imagination, and the other ones with with algorithms. That's it. Yeah. So maybe fiction is like the alchemy version of the science of simulations that will come along at some point. And, uh, you know. So I don't like that. <laughs> so, I don't like that idea. So, but who knows? So uh, what uh, what is your ultimate uh, position here at the at least at the end of this article when you sent it in? How you how are you feeling about um, living in this? Uh, Life, the universe, and everything uh, kind of world where the answer is 43 or whatever. Yeah, I don't... Uh, what was I thought it was 40, 42. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm still not convinced that, that, uh, that it's a stimulation. Obviously, that's a, it's, a, it's a crazy big thing to, to suddenly you know, throw myself behind. And... And I and I have heard it referred to, along with the you know the coming singularity is sort of the, the nerd rapture, and you know and if it's if it can be dismissed as the nerd rapture, then I guess you know you shouldn't be accepting it so quick. But um, it still it still bothers me because I think it's I think it's a possibility, um, and you know my my sort of my sort of quip at the end about, you know, I'd like to know what it feels like to have never thought about this at all. And although I know I'll, I'll run a simulation. So, you know, um, I, I, I think, it, I think it's interesting. I think it's a, it's a little bit disturbing, although I don't think it's scary because of what we were saying a few minutes ago. If we are in a simulation, I really don't think it makes any difference. We're still born. We still, we still die. We still do stuff. We still, learn things and we have failures and successes and happinesses and all of those things are still part of it. And it doesn't matter if we're physical or virtual. Yeah. But so what would you look for, for a glitch in the matrix? If you were going to go out and say, all right, I, I want some, some sort of empirical, uh, <laughs> um, hint of whether I'm right or not about this. Well, I mean, may, maybe you've seen them. I mean, you know, there there are those things all the time, and you know, people. I mean, even even in the Matrix, they they call what the black cat, the deja vu black cat, was a glitch. I mean, if if that's as much of a glitch, then we have those all the time. The Mandela effect, maybe that's a glitch. 
You know, it could be, you know, any, 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 any mistaken idea that you had could have been a glitch. And I remember, I remember that we had that in the conversation and the other person doesn't remember that that was in the conversation. Well, there's another possibility. And there's, those things we, we can't really know. Um, I, I think, you know, when, when the, uh, the astrophysicists are trying to sit down and look at the, the, the length of, of what might be pixelations in the universe, if they're the same size, whether they're 90 degrees and 45 degree angles from, from your, your POV, well, that's a good place to start. Uh, I, don't, I haven't seen the results of those, and I know there were arguments that they were making that they shouldn't do it because if they did do it and proved that we were in a simulation, then somebody might turn us off, which, uh, which is another, which is completely against the argument because if they would turn us off, then, then you wouldn't have stacked simulations at all. And the argument is that the stimulations are, set, are stacked. But, um, yeah, so, so they, there were people telling them not to do that, that research, which, which I think is even crazier than believing it in the first. <laughs> if it's, you don't want to anger our up, our up simulation, uh, gods, they might turn us off. Huh? I see. All right. Well, all right. So you started off by saying you didn't really, this, this whole thing was not, to do ancestor simulations, but that would be what would be most interesting to me to do. I mean, I would really like to bring back some of the dead um, and talk to them. And um, I would like to, uh, both the ones I knew and my um, farther, uh, farther out ancestors. Um, what, what objection do you have to that? I have no objection to that, but I don't, I don't think that is, is part of this at all. I mean, we we could we could have grandfathers and great grandfathers sitting in jars on our desk, and and they could be virtual and we could be physical, and there's it's a it's a it's a whole different it's a whole different set of variables in there, and I I have no objection to that at all, and except you know if I turn on my grandfather's jar one morning and he says, look, I'm bored, you got to turn me off, well then I've got a a, a moral dilemma because I want to talk to him and he wants to go away. I don't, I don't know, but um, yeah. The, so, so those kind of simulations are are a whole different ballgame. Um, and and you know, I, and I ran across a lot of things that are working to do that too. I, there's there are places online where you can go and be given this AI chatbot that you train to think like you. And eventually, the that what the the site says is that it's going to be essentially you and you're going to be able to live forever as this chatbot. I don't know if you if you want to do that, but um, then if your grandfather made a chatbot, well then you have that and you could talk to him anytime you wanted to. But that that's different different technology and and that that's a whole nother article. But that's all out there already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I often think that a lot of times you know I write I I journal, I keep a diary. A lot of times I just don't put something down because if they're going to make a virtual recreation of me, I don't want anybody knowing that that thought occurred to me <laughs> or that I made that stupid mistake. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I and I often think about that. If any, if everybody, somebody was going to make a virtual me after I was gone and collect everything I did and wrote and pictures that I looked at, well, you know, I think about that sometimes and 
Um, I think, well, do I want them to know that I, that I looked at looked at this and read that and wrote this? But then, if they don't, then it's not it, then it's not me, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, um, there is actually a wonderful uh, James Tiptree story. Um, I think it's maybe the best story she ever wrote um, about aliens coming to Earth and stirring up the dust that um, contains the memory and recreates a person. Every once in a while, um, something throughout time will stir it up and he'll come back to to a sort of life. It's called um, Her Smoke Rose Up Forever, um, which is... Uh, it, one of the several science fiction and sort of looks at this sort of thing that I've that I thought of when I was reading your piece as well. Um, what are, what are you working on now, uh, fiction wise, Rob? And uh, what's what's up with your uh, imaginative world? Um, well, I got a uh, sort of a, a steampunk version of a sequel to the War of the Worlds set in the, in the United States with. Um, the Martians trying again because the United States at at that point was so spread out that we didn't get hit as hard as Europe. So the United States emerges as a world power and stops World War One, and then um, decides to take it to the Martians. And the, but the Martians are here, sort of working um, undercover with some people. I don't know how much to say here, but working undercover with some people <laughs> to to regain their, their, their foothold. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that I get to send this to you. Sure. Well, that sounds interesting and very steampunk. It's called the insurgency of Deseret. That gives anything away. Cool. Cool. I want to thank, uh, Dr. Robert E. Fury for talking to us, um, about his article. It's called the bridge of size. Are we what might have been, uh, and that is found on the Bain.com website. And, and after it's it's taken down from the main page there, it'll always be up online. Um, it is also in our collection, Free Nonfiction 2020, which is a free ebook download that'll always be available at, at Bain eBooks. So you can you can check it out there. Um, Rob, thank you so much for talking with us about uh, this very uh, thought-provoking article. Thanks, Tony. It was fun. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League. And hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. HMS Imperator. Manticore A, Star Empire of Manticore. 
And after that, Your Grace, you're scheduled for the state dinner at Mount Royal, Lieutenant Luca Tomei said. Under the circumstances, I think it might be better if you attended as Steadholder Harrington rather than Duchess Harrington. Honor Alexander Harrington tried very hard and almost successfully not to roll her eyes. It wasn't Tomei's fault, but she'd managed her entire career without a dedicated public information officer. Partly, she acknowledged that was because she'd avoided the limelight as much as possible. More of it was that she'd held primarily combat commands, where providing public information had not been high on her list of priorities. And still more of it was the fact that, unlike some officers she could have named, she vastly preferred to get on with whatever the current job in hand might be and let other people worry about who got public credit for it. And not just because I'm such a naturally modest and self-effacing type either, she thought, remembering the bitter political infighting after the Battle of Hancock and following Paul Tankersley's death and her own duel with Pavel Young. Then there'd been all the vicious innuendo about her and Hamish during the High Ridge premiership, and that didn't even count the Mueller dome collapse back on Grayson. If there was anyone in the entire star empire of Manticore who wanted the spotlight less than she did, she'd never met her. Unfortunately, she'd had to accept years ago that she couldn't avoid it. And she had to admit, Tomei made it a less excruciating experience. A year and a half younger than Valdemar Tomel, he was far more comfortable than the flag lieutenant when it came to social events, like tonight's state dinner to bid Benjamin Mayhew an official farewell. He was less adroit than Tomel on the purely military side, but between the two of them, with prodigious assistance from James McGinnis, they got her most everywhere she needed to be almost on schedule. And in between dinners, meetings, interviews, baby kissings, ribbon cuttings, and photo sessions, I actually get to spend a little time thinking about how to fight the Solarian League, she thought Riley. I think you're probably right about that, Luca, she said now. Of course, she gave him an amused look. There's still the question of whether I go in uniform or civilian dress, isn't there? I suppose there is, Your Grace, but a soft chime interrupted him, and Honor touched the stud on her desk. Yes, she said. I hate to interrupt you when I know you're so deeply involved in something you enjoy so much, my lady. Major Spencer Hawk, Honor's senior armsman, said over the intercom, but Captain Reynolds would appreciate a moment of your time. Gosh, she said, giving Tomei a wicked look. I really hate to break this off, but if Captain Reynolds needs to talk to me, by all means, send him in. You do realize I'll be back as soon as the captain leaves, Your Grace? But if I'm quick enough, I can sneak out the back way before you get here, she said, and Nimitz bleaked a laugh from his bulkhead perch. There isn't a back way, Your Grace. Tomei's lips twitched, but his tone was admirably grave. You just think there isn't, she told him, then looked up as the cabin door opened and George Reynolds, her staff intelligence officer, stepped through it. George, just the man I wanted to see, she said enthusiastically. Reynolds smiled, but it was a brief and fleeting expression, and her own eyes narrowed. What is it? she asked in a rather different tone. Your Grace, I've got something you need to hear. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jekowitz. 
and a bunch of virtual neon flags that glow and sputter and sing Yankee Doodle and old Taylor Swift songs from back when she was good to mark his way through the labyrinth and scare away the minotaurs, plus thanks and praise for Dr. Robert E. Fury, author of Bain.com nonfiction essay, The Bridge of Sighs, Are We What Might Have Been? Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 